Welcome to the 985 Nerds Podcast, where we spend some time with the operators of the 146.985 repeater to learn more about who they are and how they got involved in ham radio. CW operator, patent holder, antique radio enthusiast, and retired electrical engineer, Joe Fell W3GMS, has been licensed since age 14 and is the owner of the 985 repeater. Today, Joe is our 985 nerd. 985 nerd, 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 N3YLI, this is W3GMS. Jeez, you're, you're full quieting, Travis, sounding really good. I'm really excited <laughs> about kicking off this adventure, Joe. Hey, Joe, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about how you got started in ham radio? It's kind of an interesting story. Uh, I got involved in amateur radio at a very young age. I didn't get licensed till I was 14, but I was in Cub Scouts. And uh, one Saturday morning, we went on a goodwill drive. In Marshallton, those that know, we're Marshallton, Pennsylvania. That's the little town that I grew up in. And uh, we were going from house to house to house and picking up all these items for goodwill. And uh, we went to one house and I saw this big floor model radio on the uh, on the porch. And these were the radios that were very popular in the 30s. They stood about three and a half foot tall, had a big, big electrodynamic speaker in the bottom and a tuner up on top. And this one happened to not only get the AM broadcast band, but it also copied some of the shortwave bands. So I had a nickel in my pocket. So I run at the end of town where they had a gas station and used the payphone and called my mother and said, come on, you got to come up to Marshallton. Here's where I'm located. Uh, I have this <laughs> I have this floor model radio that I want to put it back in the back seat of your Triumph uh, convertible. <laughs> so she says, "It'll will it fit? I says, if you put down the top, it'll fit. So she came up there and a couple Cub Scouts on each side of the floor model radio. We got the thing home and unloaded into my bedroom. And naturally it didn't work. So I, at eight or nine years old, I, I didn't know anything about circuit theory or how to repair things. But uh, I figured, well, let me just clean everything up. And I unplugged all the tubes and I cleaned the, uh, the pins on the tubes and uh, just shined everything up. And after I did that, lo and behold, I turned it on and I heard static coming out of the speaker. And I says, ah, oh, this is good. So then I asked my dad, I says, uh, Pop, can I, can I put a 120-foot wire uh, out to the side of the garage? And he says, yep, as long as it doesn't hit by lightning, you can do it. So I did that. I hooked it up, and I discover 75-meter AM, and I'm hearing all these gorgeous full-fidelity signals on 75. And I had no idea whatsoever uh, who these people were. Uh, I, I just didn't know. And then I heard one of them say uh, amateur radio or ham radio. So my parents always had the Encyclopedia Britannica. So I rush out to the living room and I pull the Encyclopedia uh, Britannica off the shelf and I look under amateur radio and it says you have to pass an FCC license. You have to know Morse code and all this other stuff. And I says, OK, I got to figure out how to do all this because I want to get on the air and talk to these folks. So um, at that point in time, you know, I, I borrowed code records and I'm I'm learning CW out of the encyclopedia completely the wrong way. You know, as we all know for CW, it's uh, A is da, not dot dash. So, uh, but I didn't know. My dad sold insurance. He didn't know anything about radio. 
So um, eventually I, uh, I memorized all the letters of the alphabet and there was a guy in school and his father was a ham. So he says, I'll loan you a code record. So I, uh, I borrow the code record and I'm listening to uh, CW at a very slow speed. It was an Amico code record and I couldn't understand one letter from another because I learned it as a dot and a dash rather than did ah. But, you know, when you're really young, it, you your mind adapts and you get bad habits out quickly. And soon I said, oh, I got to start recognizing the sounds. So once I did that, I found out that I needed a book to study for the uh, novice class license. Uh, the CW, by the way, was five words per minute back then. That was like your learner's permit um, back then. And But there was theory, elementary theory that went along with that. So I went to the um, local Lafayette radio store in Westchester, and I picked up a ARRL license manual that uh, talked about uh, novice license, and it gave uh, the subjects that you had to master. And it was interesting because the questions that they gave you were questions pertaining to the subject, very unlike today, where they give you the actual question and the actual answer. As an example, they may have said back then, okay, uh, which of the following circuits is a Colpitt's oscillator? And you would have to pick out, you look at the schematic, and then you do, they might have a Hartley, a tune plate, tune grid, a Colpitt's oscillator, a TNT, or whatever. And you had to pick the right one out. Now, it didn't tell you in the exam study material, they're going to ask you which one is the Colpitt's oscillator. But that basic subject got you into the case of, uh, I better learn about how to identify all the types of oscillators because you don't know what one's going to be on the exam. So that that was the way they used to do the exams. They always gave you the CW test first because if you're going to wash out, it was probably on the CW. And then later, they after you pass that, they would give you uh, the theory test. And uh, back then, the they had uh, it was almost like volunteer exam coordinators back then for the novice license, except it wasn't as structured. Any amateur radio operator with a general or higher class license could administer the novice test. So I went to a family friend. My dad took me there, who was a ham, W3ZAT, Bill Ingram, who worked for the post office in Westchester. And uh, he said, well, let's see if your son's ready. So he sends some CW and he asked me some questions and he says, oh, your son is really ready, but I'm not going to give him the exam. And my dad said, why? Well, I know your family and I don't want to think that uh, I cut him any slack because I'm a family friend. But I know this guy. He's a uh, he's a teacher at one of the local schools and his call is WA3AFI. Bill Melkier, and you don't know him, he doesn't know you, so he'll give you the novice exam. So uh, we made the suitable arrangements. My dad went over there and is uh, Plymouth Valiant, and uh, I was really nervous, and he, he dropped me off, and Bill was a great guy, is a great guy. And uh, they, he sent me down uh, to the lower level of his house where they had this big grandfather clock and this secretarial desk. And he says, well, here's the theory. And for some reason, I think he gave me the theory first. And I'm, taking, I'm doing the theory and I'm here this grandfather clock in the background. Tick, 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 tick. And I said, I wish that clock would just be quiet. 
<laughs> so anyway, I went through that and then he administered and Bill was pretty much only a CW operator. So he was really good. And he just hand sent CW to me at the required five words per minute. And then I had to send to him at five words a minute. And he says, okay, you passed the CW. Uh, there was no taking uh, the test and a multiple choice uh, answers uh, on, on that. You had to actually copy it down on paper a certain amount of letters consecutively in the row without making a mistake. And, uh, and so that's, so he graded that. He says, yep, you easily passed the CW, but he says, we're going to send the theory off to the FCC. So the FCC graded the theory, uh, on the, on the back then, the, 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 the person that administered the general Ohio, he was not allowed to grade the theory that had to go to the FCC. But he says, well, let me take a quick look and see how you did. So he took a quick look. He says, you got nothing to worry about. I can't tell you you passed, but you'll hear it. So uh, at some time later, it was uh, eight weeks later com coming in the mail. You had to wait eight weeks. This little piece of paper uh, that was the FCC license said uh, uh, WN3GMS. That was the call, the end for novice. So, uh, so I got on, uh, I got on the air with CW and, uh, that's where it all started. I actually did not get introduced to my mentor till, uh, I actually, uh, had my novice license. So I didn't know him before I passed my novice test. So, uh, I never met him in person. I heard him on the radio, but I never had the opportunity to actually meet him and be introduced to him. I was kind of annoyed at him initially because when I was a shortwave listener, I sent him a shortwave listener QSL card. You had to copy, you had to get X amount of cards. You sent them into, it was either popular electronics or electronic illustrate. And if you sent in 10 QSL cards, they sent you back a listening license. And I, <laughs> and I still have QSL cards to this day that say WPE3GJF. So I was all excited. Oh, I got to send this guy, Harry, this WPE3GJF. And he never sent me a card back. And I was heartbroken. So uh, then one day, um, after I had my novice license, um, I had this big shortwave receiver on. And my dad says, who is that guy? I said, well, he goes by the name of Harry. And my dad said, I know him. He says, I sold he and his family a uh, an insurance policy when the, some more kids came along. And I says, do you think you could introduce me to him? He says, sure, I'd be glad to. So that's how I was introduced to became the best mentor, uh, Elmer, that, that you could ever have. And I think all the other Friday nighters would, would certainly agree. So that's how I, uh, a kind of a long twisty tail, but that's how I got uh, started in amateur radio. What was the rig you were first using? My first rig, I, I tried when I was eight or nine years old, I tried to build a transmitter of my own. And this is kind of an interesting story. I, I tried to build this uh, 6V6 crystal oscillator transmitter that was in a magazine, but I knew so little about electronics. I didn't realize that the resistors had different values. So I, I got an old TV set and I clip all these resistors out and I said, that's, it looks exactly what, like what's in the picture they showed or the underneath side of this chassis. So I had a soldering iron and I'm just soldering these parts <laughs> and I was heartbroken. I plugged it in and it went up in smoke. Ah, the magic smoke <laughs> came out. 
And then I, I was, and so my dad came home from work and I, he says, how was your day, son? I said, it was bad, dad. I says, my transmitter I was building went up in smoke. And he says, well, let me take a look at it. You know, I don't know anything about these things. So he says, I think those little things that you soldered in, I think each one is different. One is not equal to the other. And that was the same I thought about the capacitors. A capacitor was a capacitor. They were all the same. So once that happened, uh, then a birthday was coming up. And uh, my dad and mom gave me a Heathkit DX60A transmitter. And uh, that was a great transmitter. It sold for $79.95. It works CW and AM foam. It ran 90 watts input, fully tuned up. And that was illegal as a novice. So they had a, you had to back it back because the most power you were able to run as a novice uh, was 75 watts input. Everything back then was input. There was no specification for output. So input power is on a tube rig is plate voltage times plate current. So all the transmitters have a plate current meter and a plate voltage meter, and uh, you just multiply those two together. And uh, uh, providing the current times the voltage does not equal anything greater than 75, you were legal as a, uh, as a novice operator. And I pretty much went by the letter of the law back then. So uh, I made sure I didn't violate it because I didn't want the FCC knocking my door down. <laughs> what did you have to put in to, to bring it down? Uh, it's a way you tune it. On a tube final, you have something called a tuning control and you have something called a loading control. And when you're looking at the plate current meter on the final, you dip the current with the tuning control. So you come down to resonance and you dip, and then you go on the other side of resonance and the current goes up. So you're always dipping the tuning. Now, if you need more or less plate current, you either increase or decrease that second control, which is the loading control. So that's how you do it. And there's a, uh, there's a third control, and they call that the grid tuning. Um, the grid tuning, you have to resonate that. And to resonate the grid tuning circuit on a tube transmitter, you peak the grid current. You don't dip it, you, you peak it. And if it runs too much, there's a drive level control in which you turn back the drive level control until you get to the right current for the grid. The DX60 required uh, 2.5 milliamps on the grid. And uh, let's just make it simple. If we had uh, 750 volts on the plate, which it wasn't quite that high on the DX60, and you had 100 mils of plate current, so uh, 100 mils is 0.1 amperes. You move the place three over. So it's 0.1 times 750 for the plate current, or for the plate voltage rather, and that's equal to 75 watts input. And ba based on the uh, efficiency of the transmitter, you might get... Uh, uh, 50 watts or so output with that kind of input power. And that radio, that was crystal controlled? Well, that was a requirement uh, for novice operation. You were not permitted to uh, go with a VFO, a variable frequency oscillator, until you uh, had upgraded. So you were rock bound. I had two crystals because that's all I could afford on 80 meter CW, 3724 and 3739. And both of those are in the phone band today because they extended the phone band down into the CW portion a number of years ago. So it's kind of a hoot where I was banging away on CW. Now you hear uh, a sideband quacking away. <laughs> <laughs> and what antenna were you connected to at that point? Okay, I put up a, uh, a 75 meter dipole, which was about 120 feet long, and it was fed with coax. 
and it was actually uh, in an inverted V configuration. Uh, I made a homebrew tower that uh, Chuck, NA3CW, and Bob, N2HM, uh, helped me put up. And it was like an A-frame tower. So you picture, in simplistic terms, say a 20-foot 2x4 on the left, a 20-foot 2x4 on the right, and you join them at the top, and that becomes like an A because you spread the base. And then you have another 20-foot 2x4 going up at the top, lag-bolted through. So the beauty of that tower was that you had this long base leg, so you didn't have to guy it on that, on the, that side. But the other side, you had to guy it. So I had a lag bolt into my dad's garage and then something tied to a bush on the other side. And a pulley up on top, and that's what we uh, we put the uh, center of the uh, the dipole really configured as a uh, inverted V. The interesting thing back then, the DX60 was just a transmitter. So the receiver I used, and that was uh, that was another gift for maybe Christmas or something, was a Heathkit GR64. And uh, folks would go nuts. The New Hamps would go nuts trying to use that receiver today because it was really just a, a shortwave listening type receiver. All of 75 meters on the slide roll tuning was about an inch on the dial. From 3.5 to 4.0, you had this pointer and the inch. That was it because the receiver covered from the broadcast band uh, all the way to 30 megs. So you had this little tiny sliver in that receiver. There was no crystal filtering in the IF or anything like that. So uh, when you tuned in a CW signal, oftentimes you heard maybe two or three or four CW signals at the same time. So you trained your ear on pitch. So you found the pitch that you like. Everybody has a sweet spot for the pitch that they like to copy CW on. So you tune that, and it's amazing how you can train your brain to ignore the other signals. So, yeah, it was. I think it had four tubes in it, the receiver, or maybe five, but four or five tubes. It did have something which made it a little bit better. It had a band spread. So once you got to the general portion of the band and that over that one inch, you had like a little bit of a fine tuning control that helped a little bit. But it was, you know, and they drifted like crazy. So while you're talking to somebody, you had one hand on the receiver, <laughs> you know, tracking them up the band as it would drift up and down and things like that. But uh, it was uh, it was how radio was, and that's how a lot of the kids. And this was the time frame was 1966, and everybody was doing the same thing in '66 and and earlier. That's how you got on the air, and that's how you made QSOs. I had my novice for about two and a half months, and got my speed up to about 16, 17 words a minute. So I went down to the FCC office in uh, in Philly and took the general license. It's interesting to know back then that the general license, you had all privileges. You could operate anywhere on the amateur bands. So there was never any incentive to get the advance, which is no longer uh, exist for new licensees uh, or extra. So what ARL pushed, they pushed something called incentive licensing. They'd say, this is crazy that a general can have all privileges. So what's the advantage of getting an advance or an extra? So they pushed this through with the FCC and ultimately they adopted something called incentive licensing. And at that point, they took some of the privileges away for the general and gave those privileges to the advance and took more privileges away and gave them to the extra. And the old timers who could operate everywhere with the general, they're maybe 70, 80, 90 years old. They were up in arms because they weren't about to take any more tests. It's kind of a shame they didn't grandfather them 
because they were at the point in life, probably the exams may have been difficult depending on their particular situation, but uh, they stuck by it and that's it. And I know many general licensees today that are licensed because they refused to upgrade because they vehemently opposed that they weren't grandfathered when incentive licensing uh, took place. You currently hold an extra license? Yeah. 20 word per minute extra. (laughs) (laughs) Not one of those newfangled, (laughs) no code extras. (laughs) But I'm just kidding. You know, we don't make the rules. We just follow the rules. And a quick story about the CW. When I was learning the CW, I said, boy, I hate this. I'm never going to use this once I get my license. And uh, I said, why in the devil do they make me learn CW to get on to talk to people? Well, lo and behold, I learned it. And once I learned it and got comfortable with it, it was, uh, I started liking it. And one of the things that really helped my CW speed get up faster, quick, was I was a net control station on the novice band with the Eastern Area Slow Net, E-A-S-N. So uh, I think it got on like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So I would come home from school, throw all my books under my bed, and get on and be net control station. And, and what you did, there's this thing called, and I think ARL still has it, it's called a radiogram. And what you do is you're passing messages. Say somebody anywhere in the world wants to send a message to somebody in Westchester. Well, they do all the hops via amateur radio through the national traffic system. So me, when I would run the net control, they would check in and I says, oh, I have traffic for Westchester. I have traffic for Coatesville. I have traffic for Phoenixville. And then I would ask, are there any stations in that area that are on the air, and then I would put that station in contact with the sending station, and they would pass the traffic. And you have to actually count the words in the message to make sure you got them all. So it was really good practice when you were learning CW, because you got the you got the numbers, you got the punctuation marks, you got the letters, you had the whole kit and caboodle, and, and that was that was that was a pretty fun thing. You ended up teaching CW when you were in the armed forces, right? Yeah, when I was uh, in the early 70s, uh, I was under the lottery system for the military draft, and they they pulled you, and Vietnam was not quite done, just to put things in the right time frame. And uh, based on your birthday, they picked a number, and I think, uh, well, my number was 15, which meant I would be drafted. So um, I said, geez, I can't be drafted. I have to enlist. So I enlisted, and then I got to pick my MOS, which stands for Military Occupation Specialty. And I picked, uh, it was radio, uh, teletype, CW, uh, HF operator. So uh, I went through the normal Army basic training at Fort Jackson, and then I went to, they called AIT, Advanced Individual Training at Fort Gordon. When I got to Gordon, I was in the CW class the first day because they didn't know I knew CW. And they said, and they always told me, when you go in the Army, never volunteer for anything. But I figured this could serve me well. So I was pretty hot on CW back then because I was still operating a lot of it. And the speed was good. So they says anybody, and a lot of the Special Forces guys were coming back from Vietnam, but they didn't have enough to fulfill all the teaching slots for CW. So they were looking for CW instructors. So I raised my hand and I said, so you know CW, huh? And I said, yeah, I know it a little bit. And uh, they said, how fast uh, can you copy? I said, well, what do you want me to copy? So they put a high-speed Morris intercept tape on, 
And I, I also learned how to type in high school. So I could type CW and that was a lot easier than writing it. So they gave me a typewriter. They put the high speed Morse intercept tape on and it may have been 26, 27 words a minute. And I copied it solid. So then, and I was only in the class for like five minutes. And then they said, son, you're, lo you're no longer a student in this man's army. You're an instructor. So I got an instant promotion to Sergeant E5. That's three stripes. They said, no, 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 you don't sleep in the barracks anymore. We have a special sleeping quarters for you. And then they made me, they made me the active platoon sergeant. So all the guys in the barracks I was in charge of. And uh, so I got to march them to pick up cigarette butts on the parade field and do this other nonsense that the military makes you do. And, uh, but every, uh, every day I went to, uh, we, we called it diddly bop school. And uh, we had a very intensive uh, uh, training program for CW. And that was fantastic experience. I, I loved every minute. And, you know, people that say they can't, I don't believe, because over 98% of everybody in the CW class graduated at 16 words per minute. The 2% that, that washed out, they said, I just don't want to do this. And we sent them to school to learn how to fold sheets and be supply clerks. How old were you at this time? I was, uh, let me see, put it in perspective. I was about 19 years old at this point. And you had people older than you that you were training? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the nice thing about the draft was I had uh, attorneys. I had medical doctors. I had all kinds of different people. There was no deferments, zero deferments at that time. So they picked from the herd. So in all your years in teaching CW, what kind of tricks do you have up your sleeve to help those today that are learning the art of CW? Okay, the, the first thing is don't memorize dots and dashes like I did. Do not do that. Think of every letter of the code as a different sound, like A, da-da, and B, da-da-da-da. Well, da-da sounds a lot different than da-da-da-da. And once you get the sound differences in your head, uh, it, it's amazing at how well it goes. The other thing is, and the Army uh, violated this because they wanted to teach it to you, and I forget whether it was 12 weeks or 10 weeks. I forget the time of the schooling. Generally, uh, civilians or people in amateur radio, they spend too long at practice sessions, and they become frustrated. When you're first learning CW, if you can hang in there a half an hour, that's fantastic. If you can hang in at 15 minutes, that's, that's good. A lot of uh, daily short practices are much, much more beneficial than uh, the long uh, sessions because what happens is your brain kind of turns to mush and it compresses, and then it goes what I call into the digital region. It's either cut off or it's in saturation, and it's out of the beautiful analog region. Switching gears a little bit back to Harry, your mentor, was he a CW operator? Yes, he was. And he was good. Did you spend a lot of time working with him on CW? By the time I met Harry, my CW was already pretty good. Uh, in fact, I don't think I ever, as a novice, I don't think I ever worked him on CW. But once I upgraded and the Friday nighters started going up to the repeater site where he had his radio station, and we started working contests and things like that, uh, there was definitely uh, a CW operation going there. And the Friday nighters used to go into he and his wife's home on Price Street in Westchester every Friday night for years till people left uh, high school, went off to college, military, whatever it may have been. 
every Friday night, there was a huge easel-type blackboard in the living room. The dining room was in the middle and loaded with every kind of food you can imagine. Hoagies, chips, Doritos, dip, salsa, you name it, it was there. And then in the kitchen, we had an Amico code practice oscillator. And the folks that knew CW, it was their job to instruct and to teach some of the folks that were became Friday nighters that needed CW proficiency brought up. So we had CW practice in the kitchen. Uh, everybody would eat in the dining room whenever they felt like it, grab this, grab that. And then Harry would be there in the living room with the blackboard easel drawing circuits of super heterodyne radio receivers, explaining how things work, and this, that, and the other. It was an unbelievable, probably almost non-repeatable uh, thing that we went through. What did Harry do for an occupation? He worked for Luke and Steele, and just before he retired, sadly, he developed uh, a tendency to have some strokes rather early in life. And I think he, I'm not sure, Chuck might, may know the exact dates, but it was like maybe late 40s, early 50s. He started having multiple strokes and ultimately he had to uh, retire because of health conditions. Uh, but we knew him before he had, or at least I knew him before the strokes and things of that nature. But he was a foreman of a machine shop that I understand did like custom fabrication and things like that. I, I don't know if he ever had any formal education electronics other than, you know, just having the knack for it and developing the ability for it and things like that. But uh, another comment I'll make is if you had a question, he would not always just give you the answer. He says, well, I want you to think about that a little bit and then we'll discuss it. So he, he taught all of us how to think and not just memorize what his answers were on things. And he also, I remember, he, <laughs> he would uh, school me when I was up at his shack operating as transmitter on on-the-air poise. He says, you know, some of these hams get on there and they're going to go, ah, ooh, ay, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, bleh, you know, and all this other stuff. And he said, no, no, you don't want to do that. You want to set example when you're on, your, on the radio. You want to get your thoughts together and have a good delivery style. And you never, ever, ever want to say a curse word or anything, even though it may be FCC legal, because you never know what kid like you were, meaning me, when I was eight year old. And he says, you have to create a positive image of amateur radio. And if a, if a, uh, if a ham brings his grandson into the shack and they hear a bunch of rubbish on there, it's going to be a big, big detractor. So you have to hold up the image of our hobby, and he really enforced that. The other thing that he enforced was when we get to a certain age, we have to give back. And that was very, very important to him. How long did you work with him? Well, I, uh, geez, I was with him for years and years and years. And uh, years later, you know, uh, Martha actually had the opportunity to meet Harry. Now, the 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 formalized training, I would say the Friday nighters, we didn't, you know, when we all got out of the military and college and whatever, you know, we, we never went back there on Friday nights. We would be up at the hill where the repeater site is and we'd be climbing towers and putting new antennas up. And he would say, I got this new antenna I want to try. And we had uh, wire beams on 40 meters pointing towards California. We were working California on 40 before anybody here on the East coast could even hear it. 
and we had wire beams made up for 80 meters and uh, things like that. So he, he loved antenna experimentation, and we did just tons of antenna experimentation. Uh, one time we set a, a big vertical up with a weather balloon. Uh, one of the guys worked for Foot Mineral, and uh, he was able to conjure up a weather balloon and Harry actually had Pico turn off the power on the, on the high tension lines in front of the shack while we had this vertical up in case the wire came down. So he, he, Harry knew everybody, you know, he, he just knew everybody. He was a, uh, he was a pilot. He was a stunt pilot. He was a boxer. Uh, he was, I think, the assistant uh, police chief of one of the municipalities. Uh, he was a golfer. He was a very competitive golfer. He was always telling me how I should cut my lawn to make it look like a golf course. <laughs> and, and by the time that I really uh, knew him well, he already had the strokes and he no longer could pass the physical to get uh, to fly. Now, he would go up with other pilots and fly. And I think Chuck had one of those flights with him. But when he had his when he had his actual pilot license, the other thing he did back in the old days, he would put bigger engines in these planes. You could do things like that. And he had a Swift and he had a Stearman. And he would always put bigger motors in them because he wanted to go faster. And people that flew with him says, I'll never fly with him again. He scared the GBs out of me. There was one case where he, uh, he wanted to deliver an antenna to somebody down on the main line touring Philadelphia. So him and a buddy or somebody built the antenna, and they said, well, let's not drive it down. I'm going to drop it from the airplane. <laughs> so it was a, uh, it may have been a Sturbicurt antenna, and they have lots of wires that hang down from a horizontal wire. And they coiled the thing up, and they dropped this antenna down. And, of course, the antenna gets all tangled. He did hit the property and uh and things like that and then you know his parents lived in um in parksburg on Stroudsburg uh, avenue or road or whatever it was called and harry used to love to buzz their house because his mom had lots of cats so every time he would buzz the house the cats would get scared and they would climb up the shades <laughs> and his mother was just livid so he was the ultimate kidder and prankster he he, he loved doing that stuff so um, I, I don't have the year when he passed, but we kept in, in close contact as, as well he did with all the other Friday nighters uh, long into our early adult life. In fact, you know, it, in 19, I can tell you in 1975, he was still around because that's when he ordered me to build and design a repeater. It was, it was his insistence. He wanted me to do two repeaters. He wanted to do an analog voice repeater on two which I did. It took me a year. And the other repeater, because he was really into he, he didn't have any ATV equipment up there at the hill. And he said, we got to have an ATV repeater. We have the perfect site for it. But I was just never into ATV. So I just kind of procrastinated and procrastinated on that. And I guess he figured out I just wasn't going to do it. So we never did that. But one of the picnics up there, he had a bunch of, bunch of hams in, I think, from WGAL in uh, Lancaster. And they brought their high, I remember him talking about this. They, he, they, brought, his, uh, they brought their high-resolution studio cameras in. And we, we lined up another ATV group in Baltimore. So we were sending high-resolution pictures in the early days from the repeater site directly to Baltimore. And uh, he, uh, he just thought that was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And at these picnics, he always had, quote, unquote, a celebrity. They were in August up on the hill, up at the repeater site. 
he would have uh, he would have a celebrity. And uh, another good friend of his was a gentleman by the name of uh, Bob Lewis, W2EBS. And Bob uh, was uh, vice president or president of an antenna design firm in New Jersey, who his firm designed a lot of the antennas on the Empire State Building. So he would have Bob up there. He had him up there one year to give tutorials on antenna design and things like that. And I got to know Bob fairly well. So my dad used to take me over to Lincroft, New Jersey, where Bob and his wife's home was. And uh, he had an antenna range down in the basement. And upstairs was the mathematics room. And he would do all this mathematics, which I had no clue when I was so young. But he would do all the math on antenna gain, directivity, predictions, and all that. And he says, okay, now let's go down and check the math. So he would get out, we would get down, and we actually built the antennas with like little toothpicks because it was all above one gigahertz. So the antennas very, we'd make these yaggies and all these other types of antennas. And then we would take uh, field strength readings at the end of this antenna range in his basement, and then it would, we, we would compare it to his analytical calculations. And let me tell you, they were pretty close to meeting, uh, meeting what the math showed. So through Harry, I got to meet these people, and that was just, you know, that was just a real, real treat. On your QRZ page, you mentioned Harry was one of the guiding factors towards your electrical engineering. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. He, uh, you know, I, I was kind of a strange kid uh, because I knew I wanted to do something electronics at a very, very early age, like playpen age, where I found this old uh, record player and I threw out all the toys, the squeaky toys and the playpen that my parents put in. I hated those toys. And I kept pointing to this, this uh, record changer an amplifier and uh and i guess it didn't it didn't work and I, my mom asked my dad if she could put that in the playpen and so i they put it in the playpen and i never whimpered a day after that <laughs> and then they put a record in and then i would take you know with my tiny little hand i put the record on i dropped the needle on the record now mind you this wasn't plugged in so there was no amplifier and i found that if i turned the record with my hand and i put my ear real close to the needle I could hear music and I was fascinated with that. So yeah, Harry, Harry gave us a lot of uh, inquisitiveness that uh, made us want to pursue electronics to even a finer level. So uh, yeah, he was, uh, he was so influential in, uh, in all of our careers. What is your current favorite rig? If you want to go through the museum, you'll be here for three hours because I think the last count was about 350, but we won't do that. I'm sitting at uh, Studio B right now up in the family room, and this, this, this station came on there about 25 years ago when Martha says, rather than go downstairs, why don't you have a rig up here? I work on the computer, and you can get on the air and chit-chat with people. So it started off as this almost like a card table, and now it's, you know how things grow? But to answer your question, my current HF rig, is a uh, Tentec uh, Jupiter. And the Tentec Jupiter goes into uh, an Ameritron AL82 amplifier, which has a pair of 3500Zs. And the uh, 3500Zs, they'll run 1500 watts PEP. So that's the amplifier. And interestingly enough, that's the same tubes that Harry in his later years used in his amplifier, which he homebrewed up on the hill. And their 3500Zs are just fantastic. They're reasonably priced and... Um, so much more so than the ceramic tubes, which can run thousands of dollars. 
So anyway, so that goes into a, uh, a tuner, a balanced tuner, because I'm a big advocate uh, of open wire line fed antennas. And uh, since I'm an audio nut, all my audio gear and audio processing gear uh, is fed into the Tentac Jupiter. And it's fed in not at the mic input because the in the, all these rigs, the mic input, it goes through these mic preamps and they all tailor the response and mess with it. So what's the use of putting some great audio in if it's going to get squeezed, uh, you know, <laughs> before it comes out? So I, I modified this one and I send audio right into the balance modulator of the sideband generator, which bypasses all the, the low level stuff. And a real quick story, the the five, uh, uh, you know, I, I've been so fortunate in my amateur radio career, as I call it, but this Tentec Jupiter, uh, a quick story on that. I went down to visit a ham in uh, Villanova, W3GNG, Phil Burnham. He's a silent key now. He was an infantry commander in the Battle of the Bulge uh, during WW2 and had his leg blown off. And uh, he came back and started a uh, chemical company and sold chemicals chemical reagents to the pharmaceutical industry. And he always kid, kidded Martha when he found out she was from Tennessee. His biggest first sale came from Tennessee. So he always liked those folks down at Tennessee because they said they got his business started just great. <laughs> but anyway, we became very, very good friends. And he was uh, a member of our little frog radio club. So he calls me down one time in, in Villanova and he says, uh, come on down here. I want to talk to you. So I go down. He said, I just got a new rig from Tentec. And he had the Jupiter. And uh, he said, uh, get on there and work some stations and let me know what you think of it. If you like it, I'm going to keep it. If not, I'll send it back because they had a policy. You could keep it. If you didn't like it, you send it that back and they wouldn't hit you other than, I think, shipping. So he said, what? I said, it's, it's a great, great little rig, Phil. I like it a lot. He says, you think I should keep it? I says, yeah, I'd keep it. It uh, does a lot of things very well. So two days later, FedEx on my porch is a brand new Tentec Jupiter from, uh, from Tentec, courtesy of Phil, W3GNG. So, <laughs> so that's why this rig, this rig is kind of on its last legs. It's well over 20 years old now, and uh, I, I need to do some work on it. Uh, but it's it's so sentimental, I'll never, ever get rid of it. And I'm currently using that. It's so sentimental that my wife bought me a brand new Kenwood TS590S four years ago for Christmas. And other than firing it up and having one CWQSO with it, I've never used it. And she says, when are you going to use that Christmas present I gave you? I says, when Phil's rig totally craps out. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's almost at that point you know it's i'm i think uh for marital bliss i think she would be happy so maybe i'll use phil's down in the lab as a second thing or something like that but i think i better get that ts590 up here pretty soon <laughs> looking at the picture on your qrz page yeah which rig is that? Is that the one in the bottom left? The one in the bottom left is my uh, Johnson Ranger. That that rig works. Uh, that's like, uh, I have the Ranger 2. That was like 1961 vintage. Uh, that rig is 160 meters through 6 meters. Okay, none of the work bands or anything because it was early 60s. It's CW and AM, and I've modified the audio in that rig and a lot of other things extensively. So that's the low-level AM transmitter I use to drive the amplifier when I want to run legal limit AM. The, the, uh, the, the, the panel right above it is the push-to-talk panel. I don't know whether, how well that shows 
but you'll see a red button and a yellow button. We hit the red button and that put whatever transmitter I select on the air, talk. When I want to go back to the receive, I hit the yellow button. And there's three toggle switches over the left side of that panel. But one of them says 2 meter 440. One of those says uh, Tentec uh, Jupiter. And the other says the uh, Ranger 2. So depending on what toggle switch I flip up, and once I hit the main switch, that puts that particular transmitter on the air. With that capability, I can transmit simultaneously on three different transmitters if I would want to. Above that is the Tentec Jupiter. That's the Jupiter. And I, I don't know how old that photo is, but you'll probably see an antenna tuner above and the amplifier on the top of the rack, the AL82. Today... What is your favorite band to operate on? Um, I like 160, and I kind of like 160 uh, because um, it's what I call the gentleman's band. Uh, everybody can't operate it, and it, there's I've never heard any riffraff on, uh, on 160, where I've heard a lot on 75, especially at nighttime. 160 is a fantastic band. It tends to be very noisy with static crashes in the summer, as you might imagine, with the lightning storms. And as propagation lengthens out in the evening, you hear every snap, crackle, and pop across the country. But it's a wonderful cold winter band. And I've worked 78 countries in my amateur career on uh, on a, on 160 meters now they were on cw uh am phone i worked the west coast i worked w6am which is a pretty famous ham out on the west coast but um 160 is a wonderful band uh, the next two favorite bands are 75 during the daytime not at night and 40 meters uh, earlier in my amateur radio career, you know, you get your license, and I recommend this, that all new hams do that. Try everything. Try everything that you feel like doing. So I said, uh, you know, sideband was well, and I said, well, all these people are on sideband. Maybe I should get a sideband transmitter. So I got a sideband transmitter. I borrowed a linear amplifier. I put a six-element tri-bander up on top of the 60-foot tower. Well, rather, Woody put it up there, W3TTW. And I'm on 20 meters during the worldwide DX contest, squawking away and pointing the beam where I wanted to talk. And it was rare I didn't get them on the first call. So there's folks that enjoy that all the time. But I kind of grew a little bit tired of it on a daily basis because I like to rag chew with people. So a buddy of mine that was moving, a ham that was moving to uh, Michigan, he says, you ever think about selling that six-element tri-bander on top of the 60-foot tower? He says, I'm looking for something to set up in Michigan. I said, now, nah, come on over. You take it down, you can have it. And so then what I did is I, uh, I put up the uh, 240-foot center-fed antenna with open wire line feeders and uh, at 60 foot at the apex in the form of an inverted V. And I've used that antenna now for um, probably 44 years here at this QTH. And what I like about it is it's a half wave on 160. It's a full wave on 80 and two full waves on 40. So it's the lowest loss multi-band low frequency HF antenna you can have. You know, there's traps you can put in antennas and things like that. They all have loss. They all have bandwidth issues and things like that. Fan dipoles aren't a bad choice. The bandwidth is a lot narrower and things like that. And you got to remember, when you mismatch a piece of coax at the end, the insertion loss goes, through, uh, goes up on that piece of coax. At the end of coax, if it's 50-ohm coax, it wants to see a 50-ohm termination. 
So with open wire line, since it's not coax and it's air dielectric on the true open wire line, it doesn't care. You can have a 10 to 1 SWR on the open wire line because it's open wire line and you have no dielectric loss because it's air. doesn't care. So the loss boils down into primarily the gauge of wire that you're using for the feeders. So uh, it's a tremendously efficient multi-band antenna. I've used this antenna work DX on 20. 10 meters, it's not really great, although I can get an SWR one-to-one, and it doesn't care what the SWR is on the line, but it's just, it becomes so loby, as we call it, on 10, that it's really not a great 10-meter antenna. I'd be better off with a 10-meter dipole up there. So when I get the new tower up, I have a small three-element Mosley TA33. So that will be used on 10, 15, and 20. And then I'll continue with the uh, the 40, 80, and 160 with the 240-foot center fed with open wire line. And that's the one that Chuck is building the uh, motorized tuner for me for. What is your favorite operating mode? Um, it's a tough one. I, I like CW, but I operate mostly AM. So in, in sequence, I guess, since I operate mostly AM, and I'll tell you why I like AM in a minute, but uh, AM, CW, single sideband would be the order. Um, I like AM because people are building their own, they're modifying it. You know, you have the technical gadgetry of it. You can get in, you ch- can change resistor values, you can optimize capacitor values, get into the audio stage, make the audio flat from DC to light if you want that. And you can do things. That's the beauty. So it's like a AM is like a watering hole with people that enjoy the technical modifications and home brewing of the rigs. And being a retired engineer, I like that a lot. CW, some of the best quality QSOs I had, zero riffraff on CW. I just haven't run into any. Um, I like to rag chew on CW. Some of the CW ops are kind of hit and run. They want to see how many, especially POTUS stations and soda and things like that. And you can understand that. They, they're trying to rack up number of contacts. You know, people don't rag chew during field day. So it, it's kind of the same thing. But, I, I kinda, but on 40, around 70, uh, 31, 70, 32 during the day, you can actually find some old timers down there. And then you tell them you're using an old vintage transmitter from 1961. Oh, I remember that. And then you're on there sending CW to your arms ready to fall off. <laughs> Sideband is a very effective voice mode of communication with the level of sophistication, especially with the SDR rigs and things like that. It's really beyond amateurs, unless they're in that field, to get in and modify it. You know, some of the software, I don't even whether you can modify, but but getting in there and changing stuff or modifying stuff. So it's 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 a wonderful, wonderful technology and offers many, many attributes, especially in the receive department. If you take an SDR receiver, that'll a properly designed one, you know, it's just amazing what that thing will do. And I always tell people, a watt is a watt. It really doesn't matter what you use as a transmitter. But the important thing is the receiver and the antenna. They're the two key things. And I tell, I tell folks, focus on the antenna first. Get the best antenna you can get up. And then, you know, when it comes, if you want to pick up a rig or buy a rig, depends how you want to use the rig. If you just want to rag chew on the air and you don't want to be a contester where crowded band conditions, I know no rig that would be a bad choice today. From something that's like an ICOM 718, which is kind of an entry-level rig, they were great. No issue. 
Uh, if you want to uh, do something with uh, contesting and operate under very crowded band conditions where stations are packed in very closely, uh, that's when some of the, uh, the newer transceivers receive section has some major advantages. So you kind of, I call it statement of requirements. You kind of do your statement of requirements. And then based on that statement of requirements, you then know what to buy. And you can, you can do it very inexpensively by buying used. On the CW side, are you only straight key or do you use other keys as well? I, I, I've mastered all three and I can switch between them seamlessly. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I learned them at such a young age. I was taught and the school of thought was don't touch a bug until you get above 10 words a minute, preferably 13 words a minute. So I was a straight key guy to about 13. And then I was uh, talking to somebody and they said, hey, you want to buy a used bug for five bucks? And that was back in probably 19, because I got my license in 66. That was probably 67 or 68. So I bought my first bug. And for maybe some of the new hams that do do not know what a bug is, a bug is strictly a mechanical device. It makes the dits by a pendulum swinging back and forth by the inertia you set up by the initial move. So uh, you have this pendulum. The longer the pendulum is where the weight is, the slower the CW is because it takes longer for the pendulum to swing. As you slide that weight up and the weight makes the pendulum shorter and shorter mechanically, it starts going faster. So just beside, just by sliding the mechanical weight back and forth, you can vary the dip speed. It's semi-automatic. You still have to make the DAWs manually. So you're doing the dits and the really critical thing and the thing that I always tried to master is to get the dit to da ratio correct because you hear a lot of guys on bugs and the, the dits are just flying and then the, the, the da's are going much slower. So the overall timing is not good. So I always tried to emulate, uh, not that I, I did it in all cases, but I always tried to emulate code practice on W1AW. So then there was a QST article I got when I was a, a little kid, and it had a, a keyer you could build. So uh, I said, boy, I never used a keyer. And people said, once you use a keyer, you, you won't be able to go back and use the bug because it's going to mess up your mind. Because the keyer, as you well know, Travis, is, makes dits automatically and does automatically. And a keyer is a wonderful device because you don't get tired with it anywhere near as much. You can operate a keyer for a long time. And probably because I was young, it took me maybe... I would, I would take the same Encyclopedia Britannica and I would get the, the, the keyer paddle and I would connect it to my WB4VVF AccuKeyer, which was a kit I built, and I would just practice. And after about a week, two weeks, I said, I'm ready to go on the air with it. And I went on the air with it and I used it for a long, long time. And then when I started doing the museum and the old stuff, I said, well, let me go back and use the bug a little bit. So I can just, I can, I can instantly switch between the bug, the keyer and the straight key, obviously. It's, I don't even, I don't know what it is. I don't even have to think. It's just like, as soon as I hear the sound, it's like my hand knows what to do based on the sound I'm hearing. And that's the key with these things, pardon the pun, key. But, uh, but you don't want to, you, you want to listen to the sound and that will guide your hand. Don't try to make your hand produce a certain kind of sound. The sound comes first, and that drives something in the brain, which then controls the finger. And if you try to do the finger without the sound, your fist, as they call it on CW, is going to be very, very poor. So you don't want to think about it. You just want to listen with a side tone on your rig and listen to the CW. 
So you are obviously a home brewer. Oh yeah, I love it. What other than the repeater? Yeah. What is your most favorite homebrew project? Probably uh, when I was young and living in an apartment, uh, I built a kilowatt AM transmitter. It was in two six-foot rock cabinets in a spare bedroom in the apartment that I rented for my aunt and uncle. And the uh, RF amplifier, since Harry was a big advocate of push-pull, you have two types of RF amplifiers. You have a push-pull amplifier, and then you have a uh, Pi Network amplifier where the tubes are in parallel. So he was always a big advocate for a lot of good technical reasons. It was mechanically not as graceful because you had to plug coils in and out. You didn't have a band switch, but there was a lot of advantages to the push-pull Class CRF amps. So my first one to kind of emulate some of the work and some of the things that he taught me, I built a kilowatt push-pull Class C final uh, with 833A tubes. And these are tubes that they use and they used to use typically in one kilowatt AM broadcast transmitters. And then for the modulators, because remember, you know, in AM you have a carrier and then you have audio. So for the modulators, I used another pair of A33As as modulators and push-pull. And then I designed all my speech equipment to drive them. I, I uh, based on Harry's schooling, I designed, a, I think it was a six or seven channel mixer board with uh, Lafayette Calrad VU meter on because I couldn't afford a Simpson or one of the one of the better VU meters. And uh, that was interesting because um, when the FCC came to visit my station one time, they wanted to know why my turntables with Herb Alford and the Tijuana Brass record was on in my ham station. They said, you're not playing music, are you? I said, no. But I said, it's the same audio driver I use to drive the transmitter as I use to drive a speaker that I had built, a three-way speaker system. So I used to debug the audio based on the quality of sound by playing all these records. And, uh, and I'd be looking at them on the scope and making sure nothing was flat topping and I'd have every, everything biased right. Because I found with audio, I, I always start it with, uh, with instruments. You have a scope on the output, you're feeding a sine wave in. But there's another dimension to the audio stuff. We're listening to the sound. And I found out due to the ear, you know, which is not a perfect receiver, that you can have certain audio anomalies and they actually sound better to most human ears. And that's when you get into the whole debate between solid-state amps and tube amps and output transformers. That debate will live on forever. But, but anyway, so that was the most proud thing. It was this big, and it was a big job, a pair of A33s modulated by a pair of A33s, homebrew audio driver, homebrew mixer board, and the receiver. I didn't build a receiver. It was an RME 4350. But I built the desk with help of another woodworker, friend of mine, and he showed me how to do that. So it was a big console wraparound desk, and it was really, really sharp. <laughs> and uh, I still have that desk. It's downstairs. And it was such, it was such a, a pleasure. I found a picture of, of that desk, and uh, years ago we had a black cat, and the black cat sitting on top of the desk. It's, it's really a, a pretty good picture. So that was the most proud. The second is the repeater. The repeater was just incredibly uh, time-consuming and difficult job because I, I didn't have very much test equipment. I didn't have a spectrum analyzer. I didn't even, I didn't even have an RF generator. And uh, so I had, I had a lot of way. I had to figure out other ways to do things 
because I didn't have everything to make it a much easier job. And, you know, I etched all the circuit boards and ferric chloride acid and I, you know, and did all kinds of things on that. And um, the controller was all, if you remember, well, I probably, I'm not sure if it was around, uh, maybe it was around before you were born, but if you remember wire wrap boards, well, back in the computer days, a lot of the logic cards were, especially if you wanted to prototype something, they, they had, they had the, the opening on the one side of the board where the chips plugged in. And that opening had a pin which extended maybe an inch, just this sharp dagger pin that went all the way through to the other side. And then to connect these ICs based on your circuit design, you had this little little tool. It was it looked like a little tiny drill. And you stuck the wire in there, you put it down over the pins, you went zing, and it wrapped the wire around the pin. And that's what I designed and built the first 985 controller with. And I had all kinds of extra features in there. I had a voice idea that was made from an old 8-track that I robbed out of my car. It was a Pioneer 8-track. A buddy of mine was the morning announcer at WPEN when they were a top 40 station. He says, come on down and use our studios. This was when it was in downtown Philly. Went down there. We recorded uh, 68 different IDs down at WPEN, and I transcribed them uh, to a 8-track. And I put a little piece of foil at the end of each ID. So that would be my stop cue. In broadcasting, you know, they have a stop tone that stops them. But that was hard to do with my A-track. So I, I put these little little pieces of <laughs> of tape that were conductive. And it would help. The, it would hit the two little things that protruded out. And that would stop it. And then with the voice IDs, and they were lady voice IDs. There wasn't any men's voice. And they were, some of them were... Uh, were kind of, I guess you'd call them risque a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but the guys loved the IDs. So they kept kerchunking the repeater oh. <laughs> to hear the IDs. They didn't want to they didn't want to talk to anybody. They just wanted to hear Ellen or Elaine Sansini or the other ladies that were doing the IDs. So then I figured, well, I gotta think of something uh, innovative so they won't get an ID if they kerchunk the repeater. So I developed a pseudo ID random generator. <laughs> and what it would do is follow me here. Picture, I don't know whether you're familiar with a stable and monostable oscillators. Sort of. So, okay. A real, real high level overview. An a stable oscillator just oscillates all the time. Okay. It just keeps going. A monostable oscillator is an oscillator. You give it a trigger pulse. It'll, uh, it'll go high or low for a given period of time. And then it times out based on the RC time constants you use in the monostable oscillator. So I'm saying, so how can I do something that every time they kerchunk, if it's been more than 10 minutes, they won't get an ID, but still stay legally in compliant. So here's the thing now. We had to ID repeaters back then every five minutes. Wasn't 10. So I had the A stable giving a one microsecond pulse every four minutes and 58 seconds. So picture, you know, if you're looking at it on the scope or something, it's low, 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 four minutes and, uh, and 58 seconds, it goes high for a microsecond and then goes back down low again. And then it'll wait another four minutes and 58. It just keeps doing this 24 seven. Okay. So picture that in your head. And then the monostable, somebody kerchunks a repeater. Well, that sets a timer that goes high for five minutes and then it times out unless somebody else kerchunks the repeater. So it goes high for five minutes and times out. So now when that's high and the one microsecond pulse is high, 
two highs or low based on my gating structure. That triggered an ID command pulse. The old A track started, <laughs> and that gave the uh, that gave the ID. And it was wonderfully successful from my perspective. But some of the some of the folks were complaining on 985. Well, we gotta wait too doggone long to get an ID now out of this machine. <laughs> well, that's why. And then they and then some of the CW enthusiasts they said, you know, CW is okay, but or uh, those voice IDs are pretty sultry, and I enjoy listening to them. But it's nice to hear CW now and then. So I built a, uh, a CW generator, and then I multiplexed back and forth. So I'd have one voice from the A-track, and then the next command pulse, it would go over to my, my burnt prom that I would burn with my call sign in it and the address counter. So it would take the address counter out of the reset mode, and it would down the address and send. Uh, back then, it was WR3AHZ, the FCC-issued uh, special repeater call signs. But still the same frequency. Same frequency. The frequency was coordinated by a local coordination group, and we're still uh, we're still coordinated. Yeah, it was coordinated by Larry Wills, W3LW now, in uh, 1975 is when he gave the coordination. What recommendations do you have for returning or new hams today? Uh, kind of what have I alluded to before. If you're returning ham or a new ham, uh, I, I tread lightly. Okay, and I say I say this uh, because I've seen a lot of not returning hams, but new hams. They they see so much going on, and they instantly spend lots and lots of money doing lots of lots of things at a, such a rapid pace. They burn themselves out, and they're gone. I have something just like I used to tell my folks at work when they wanted a promotion. I says there's a technical competence, and then there's the maturity of the job. And my personal view is you're better off starting at a tech, going to general, and then going to extra. Because I think each one of those gives you some level of maturity. So once you get your ham license, nobody's going to take it away from you. So just kind of pace yourself so you don't burn out and go away. You pace yourself, but learn. Learn about the digital modes. Learn about the various analog modes. Learn about every mode that you think you would have interest in. And even if you don't, at least learn a little bit about it. And I think once you go through the learning process, I think then uh, you'll know, well, I think I want to try this, X, Y, Z. And you do that. But while you're doing X, Y, Z, you don't have to do 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, all at the same time. And I think that's good for your longevity in the hobby. For returning ham, they have a kind of an advantage because they know what amateur radio is about. So for the returning ham, if they've been off the air for some time, I'd, I would say the same thing. Learn about the newer technologies that exist because amateur radio has changed dramatically since likely when you left the hobby. So once you learn about the new things and the new technology, I think you'll be in a prime position to ascertain the things that you would like to do and things that, man, that doesn't sound too exciting. I'm not going to do that right now, maybe later. So I think you'll be able to set up your, your own statement of requirements, if you will, for how you want to proceed forward in the hobby. One of the groups you are involved with is the Antique Wireless Association. I joined the Antique Wireless Association uh, in 1983. And I was still busy at work, so I, I couldn't do a lot within the organization other than attend an occasional conference. At that time, they were in Canandaigua, New York. After I retired, I got more active because it was part of Harry's Give Back Something. 
So um, I started going to more of the conferences and they, they kind of, I think, saw uh, that uh, I had a, an intent interest in the early radio things. So I was asked to be the editor of the Antique Wireless uh, Journal, which uh, for the AWA on-air events. So that only not only includes the events we host, there's four a year with different vintage of equipment in each one of those four time slots over the year, but uh, also the AWA nets that they hold and things like that. So I, I took the position of being the editor and chairman with AWA of the uh, on-air events, including the, the writing of the amateur radio column and in, uh, in the uh, AWA journal. So after that, let's see, they asked me, uh, if I would like to be considered to join the board of uh, directors. So I said, uh, what's that involved? Here again, it's, I had to find out what I'm getting into, you know? They said, well, basically, you know, all the major decisions that happened with a AWA are made by the board, uh, board of directors. Actually, it's a board of trustees. And um, so there's two board meetings a year. We're a 501c nonprofit organization, so you have to have board meetings. And we bring up the major things of that. So I was doing that, and I continue to do that, and that you have to be elected for that. So every X number of years, they have a ballot out with my name on, and doggone it, they just keep reelecting me. <laughs> uh, and what does the other? Oh, and then they asked me, and I think it was 2020, they asked me if I would like to be the uh, conference chairman for the uh, worldwide AWA conference, which is held up at Rochester Institute of Technology at their Inn and Conference Center uh, later in the summer. And I said, well, tell me about that. What do I have to do with that? Well, Joe, you got to do everything. I said, what's everything? Well, you got to find, you got to find 14 guest speakers to talk about vintage radio, um, you know, well-respected and well-known speakers in the field. And, uh, you just got to run the conference. You got to work with the, uh, the hotel and you got to work with, uh, the contest people who people bring things to be contested, like a restoration item. They have a contest who does the best restoration item and in all different kind of categories, amateur radio, broadcasting, uh, whatever, whatever. So it was really good experience, but boy, it was a lot of work. And at the time, I was doing a lot of mentoring with uh, with kids, and I felt my mentoring was suffering a little bit because I was just stretched thin. So much did the chagrin about the AWA president who said, well, Joe, you're going to do this next year, aren't you? Nah, I'm sorry, Bob, I can't. <laughs> what? You got it down pat now. The next year will be easier. <laughs> <laughs> and uh if i didn't have anything else to do i would i would gladly do it but uh i said uh, so i recommend it you know that's a, that's the thing i learned about industry you always have to find your replacement because if you don't find your replacement when it when it's time for you to either get promoted or go away or do whatever you need somebody to pick up your task and uh, awa has a wonderful wonderful vice president uh mike and uh, who slipped into the conference mode very well. And this will be his uh, second, I think, second year. I had it in 2020. He had it in 21. He had it in 22. And this might be his third year of conference chairman. He's doing a spectacular job. So uh, that's, my, that's my role. Oh, and I was also given the AWA Fellow Award for my outstanding contributions. And that's one of these uh, awards that not a lot of people get. And uh, they were probably just trying to butter me up so I'd take more jobs. But <laughs> they said, no, no, that's not it. You really deserve that. <laughs> so that's what I do with the AWA. It's a wonderful organization. They have the world's largest communication museum. 
uh, in East Bloomfield, New York, up in the Finger Lake region. They have wonderful education programs that they run uh, at their campus. Uh, we had a very wealthy benefactor donate, I don't know, maybe 20 acres of ground and f- four or five buildings. And that's uh, we've taken over that as museum space. And uh, it's all operated with volunteers. There's nobody that makes a penny. And it's so, so impressive what a group of volunteers have done. I want to point the listeners to the W3GMS Facebook page. On that page, Joe, you have a picture of the Chester County Radio Association truck. Do you have any history behind that truck? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I became the historian of uh, of the Parksburg radio stations. The Parksburg radio stations were owned by a very wealthy uh, businessman in Parksburg uh, by the name of Horace Beal. And he was one of these eccentric guys, had a lot of money, uh, was in a lot of, I think he owned the steel mill in Parksburg. I think he maybe had his hand in to an airport that they once had in Parksburg and, and things like that. And he said, we need a radio station on the air. So the radio station was divided into two uh, separate segments. One was broadcast radio and one was, and this was in the very early uh, 20s. Okay. Very early broadcasting. Uh, one was broadcasting and he would go out and broadcast the, uh, the baseball games. They had a Harry, my mentor said that they had a, uh, semi-pro baseball league in Parksburg and he would go out and do all that and broadcast that. The other side was a wireless side, you know, wireless communication, what we would call hams today. And that was that. So it was divided into both. A lot of people worked in the ham station. They also worked in the commercial side and things like that. My good friend and now Silent Key, Bill Finley, W3FEA, was the historian of that station for as long as I, I knew Bill. And prior to his passing, he gave me all the records from that station. And I also knew uh, a gentleman that's a Silent Key now, W3ZO out of Parksburg. And he worked at that station in 1922. So uh, in the wireless uh, section, they also had a, a phenomenal CW op, uh, Bertha, Bertha Wilson. I hope I have her name correct. I think I do. And she was just an outstanding CW operator. I have probably 50 pictures of that station. The van that I show on my Facebook, the GMS Facebook page, is the, uh, is, uh, the radio van for the amateur radio side. Uh, there was, I, th- I believe the call sign of that van was 3OI, and that was before the FCC was even in existence. The Federal Radio Commission, I believe it was called back then, they issued call signs, but they didn't have a W or a K or an N. They all started with the number. And just like today, the number referred to where you were in the country and things like that. So I think it was 3OI that was the mobile radio van. So that that van had... Uh, early equipment in it, and some of the early stuff then was Spark, and because Spark wasn't outlawed when that when that van was first in uh, in operation, and they would go around to different thing different places in Chester County and broadcast from from that van. I'm told that that van or that uh, truck I shouldn't call it a van that truck existed up until about uh, 30 years ago. It was still in a scrapyard somewhere. And boy, if I had known that, I would have got that thing because that's a real piece of history. And Bertha Wilson, uh, she, uh, Bill, W3FEA, SK now, he actually had a chance to interview her about the station when she worked there as a CW op. 
My good friend Boyd Callen, W3ZO, was the one to shut the station down when Horace Beale became a recluse and uh, left his family and everything, let his hair grow down to his belt and took off for Florida. So that was about uh, 1926 that happened. So Mrs. Beale threw the keys to Boyd Cowan and said, lock up the station and get rid of the stuff. So uh, that's what what happened. And uh, there's various artifacts that existed over the year that uh, belonged to Bill. Bill purchased uh, the former historian, but uh, sadly all that was auctioned off um, after he passed. He gave me one piece from the station before he died, and then everything after that was sold to the highest bidder. So that's history on the uh, on the amateur radio and broadcasting in Parksburg. Uh, n- not to beat uh, KDKA in Pittsburgh is one of the first stations or the first station. There's controversy about that, and that's like two by amps and solid state amps. But they were really, really early um, in AM radio in Parksburg. If everybody's ever interested, I have the books here, and you know, stop on over. I can, I'll be more than happy to uh, show you the pictures of the station. But it's, 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 it's amazing. There's a big motor generator set because that's how they generated high voltage in the early days. There was a generator that was driven from the motor, and then they used rectifiers. They called them slop jar rectifiers, and they had um, aluminum and. Um, and what is it, uh, lead, I think maybe lead and aluminum uh, plates. And then they put a borax solution in and that made the, uh, the rectifiers. So um, that's how they converted the, uh, the stuff off the motor generator back into DC and to power the transmitters. So uh, they were real loud. So they kept all that stuff down in the basement as not to try to disturb the operators upstairs. What do you do for fun that is not radio related? Nothing. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm being facetious. Where's Martha? She'd hit me over the head. Um, we, we both like traveling a lot. Uh, we both like to get in the car and just drive somewhere that we haven't been before. Uh, we've taken cross-country road trips from here to California and back. Some of our best vacations. Uh, the the other thing we we love the Jersey Shore. We like anything near the water. So we're either staying at the Flanders in Ocean City, New Jersey, or renting a house on the beach in Ocean City. And that's that for my birthdays, which happened uh, in February. And I bang a, a pipe in the sand and I, I get on the air. But even if without amateur radio, we have a wonderful time. So I would say I was I would say uh, getting away from the house. Because what happens is uh, when I'm here, I think of projects that I should be working on and I can't truly relax by being here. It's really difficult for me to relax being here. I'm working on that. But uh, when we get in the car and we go somewhere and I'm in a completely different environment, that's, uh, that, that really is relaxing. We enjoy going up to the coast of Maine. Uh, I love the Maine coastline. It's just, uh, just fantastic. And uh, we were talking about, well, neither one of us have spent much time in Vermont. So we're talking about going to Vermont and kicking around, maybe taking 10 days. And just like we did when we went to California, we took a lot of the smaller roads so we could stop at a local diner in some small town and talk to the local people. We had to go to laundromats, which I deplore. But uh, we had to because we couldn't take enough clothes for three weeks, you know, on vacation. But uh, the interesting thing is, especially out in the Midwest, we would meet the most interesting people at laundromats. 
you know, they were just, they were fascinating. And Martha used to do a lot of decorative artistic painting and she would meet these artists. They would go down the block. They'd bring her paintings back to show her the paintings they had done before we left. We went to a, uh, we went to a uh, car museum in uh, Missouri and there was a nice uh, uh, corner hutch there. And the curator of the museum said, well, do you want it? Martha said, I'd love to have it. She said, well, just take it. And he said, well, we're on our way to California. You know, we can't, <laughs> we can't just, we were in an 85 Ford Ranger with one of these cheap caps on the back with two air mattresses and two sleeping bags. <laughs> and then we'd stay at a nice hotel every now and then, but we wanted to do it primitive style before we got too old to do it that way. Cause I'm thinking our forefathers did it in cover wagons. So I bought this old 85 Ford Ranger for 1200 bucks from a maintenance guy at Unisys, worked on it, got it roadworthy, no air conditioning. It's, I think the month was August. We're going down through the panhandle of Texas where they're setting all these heat records. And everybody said, roll up the windows. The air conditioning will work better. They could not believe we were in Texas at that time of year without any AC. And even with all that, it was by far the best vacation we were ever on. So that's how we, that's how she and I relax. What do you want to do when you grow up? Keep learning. Keep learning. I know what I like and I know what is not as appealing to me, but my eyes are always open before I make, I don't have a preconceived notion about what I like or what I don't like, unless I find out a little bit about it first. And I want to keep learning because I think if you stop learning, you know, it's, you're just done. If you were to describe yourself as an animal, what would it be and why? I think I'd be a cat. Yeah. And the reason is, have you ever heard the term curiosity of the cat or something like that? I'm a very, very curious person. Like when I was doing for living circuit design, you know, you take a statement of requirements and you can design 10 different ways or more to do a circuit. And through that process, evolution of designing circuits, I would get these ideas in my head. I would see something and, you know, you have your kind of standard textbook way of designing circuits. And I would think, well, wait a minute, nobody's done this before. Let me pursue this and see if it would satisfy this requirement in this new, unique way that had an advantage. I would never do something in a new, unique way unless there was an advantage to that particular topology. And I think it was that mental thinking that allowed me to get lots of patents because I could always think of different ways to accomplish something. And I really enjoyed that creativeness. Like oftentimes, if I'm thinking of a circuit, the circuit appears in my head first and then schematic. And then I do get out the calculator and do the math and all the other stuff. But it usually appears as a picture in my head first. And then I, I peel back that onion to bring that picture into an exact circuit. All right, a cat. Cat. Joe, I want to thank you for joining me tonight. I really enjoyed hearing about your years as an amateur radio operator. Thank you for living out Harry's charge of giving back to the amateur radio community and constantly holding up that positive image. It's great hearing you on the radio and the enthusiasm you have for this service. Thank you for joining me in this conversation tonight. This really was awesome. I appreciate very much the compliments. I, I hope Harry's up there sh smiling and looking down. I've really tried very hard and it has kind of somewhat come natural to me, maybe because I, I he instilled that upon me. 
at such an early age. But I, I love working with anybody that wants to get to a hobby. But as an example, like Luke, I think he was on the repeater like eight or nine years old. And he is a very promising, a lot of capability to be a future electrical engineer if he wants to do that. Daniel, who I started mentoring, he's now getting his PhD at MIT. We got Zach KC3WK, who just graduated from Penn State with his double E degree. And all these all these folks are just crazy, uh, are just are just fantastic, you know, at what they do. And if I just had a little tiny bit of, of their success, uh, that's all the reward I ever need. And um, and there's been others too, but uh, it's uh, it's very gratifying. And as I tell people, it makes me sleep very well at night. And thank you for doing this. You're a fantastic host. And uh, I think the, the, the podcast concept is wonderful. And I wish you all the best with it uh, and uh, sharing it with the, uh, the user base. 73. 73. You're still Q5. Thank you for listening to the 985 Nerds podcast. Check back again for other 985 Nerd conversations. Have a hamtastic day. <laughs>